Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Emily, how was your week? Well, I think that you might be able to hear from my voice that I am not like 100%. But is it... it was fine but it's just this thing that I didn't even used to get colds I never used to get the flu and now every single thing that goes around I seem to get and this started with a massive migraine kind of migraine that took me out for two days it was horrible so like we're always saying you get a virus and it's not just the normal viral impacts that you have all of your long covid symptoms seem to be exacerbated by it So what's flaring at the moment? Migraine? So it's mainly the the migraine. I've had all the sort of dizziness back, which actually I only noticed now that I had been a lot less dizzy in recent weeks. But I've got that, that kind of thing back. Interestingly, the tinnitus has actually subsided a little bit in the past week, which is such a relief because I'm, I'm not sleeping well. But the tinnitus has really, really been causing me problems with sleep. So I don't know. Swings and roundabouts. How are you? My heart seems to have settled. I think that my body, you know, we I was telling you that last week that I had this virus that the kids had brought home. But I also had my booster. And I think the combination of both really took me out. And it really did things to my heart that were worse than that at their worst. So that seems to have settled, which is great. But I have also noticed my dizziness has returned. Really? Yeah. And my eyesight has also deteriorated again, which got better. So I think these are all things that, like, it's your go-to now for your body. <laughs> you yeah, feel it's ill? weird. Well, these are all the things that now make you feel super unwell. You're going to get all these little things that might seem relatively innocuous by themselves but when they're all piled on you at one time it's quite debilitating I did have one day where I felt good and then I did too (laughs) I had one day where where my mum was like Noreen it's so nice to see you can be bouncing around a bit today and I'm like yeah my heart seems to have settled I'm I'm not feeling too bad and the next day I lost my voice Uh, I was so congested that I was coughing and I was like doing lateral flow tests again and I had honestly just gotten over the virus, had one good day, and the next day I was really couldn't speak. It was just so funny. Like, you have to laugh, don't you? <laughs> I know. But it just, you have this little reminder of what life can be like when you feel vaguely normal before a massive crash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that if you haven't really experienced it, it's kind of difficult to understand. Like, what, I don't know if you get that level of exhaustion. Yours is more like you're actually feeling shit, but sometimes I'm just so tired. I just don't, I can't do anything. And I can't, I'm just too tired to get up from where I am. So. It's really crazy how this disease affects us so differently. Like, I've ne- I have never had that fatigue as you have. I've always had, if I'm feeling tired, it's because my heart's been going too fast. And that's yeah. worn me out. But not this kind of cellular level fatigue. It's just... It's just something I've never experienced before like this just you you can't you can't do anything you can't you can't almost can't move well this week we wanted to talk to someone about uh fatigue and 
the mitochondria because it's something that keeps coming up over and over again in various people that we've spoken to and studies that we're reading. So we wanted to find out a little bit about the mitochondria. So we spoke to Dr. Betty Rahman, who's a cardiologist and a research fellow at the Radcliffe Department of Medicine at Oxford. She's been looking at the impact of long COVID since actually the start of the pandemic with the Seymour study, and she's an expert in MRI scanning. So she has started work on looking at the mitochondrial effects of long COVID on our bodies via the techniques of MRI. So it's quite exciting because we actually then talked to a company that she's working with called Axella Therapeutics that's based in Boston. And they're doing a trial together on a new therapeutic that may actually ease um, fatigue by helping the mitochondria heal. Please, would you be kind enough to give us a little about how you came into this field of research? MRI uh, is a very powerful technology that allows us to assess deep within the tissue for any microscopic damage um, of any organ, really. And um, this is done without radiation um, and can be done even without contrast agents. So uh, it's quite a safe technology that allows us to interrogate diseases um, in a very meaningful way. During my PhD, I um, really mastered uh, a number of very sophisticated techniques in MRI and have since felt quite confident that MRI does have the answers to many hidden questions and many questions that have been difficult to answer. Now, when the pandemic hit, it was clear that there were many unanswered questions, particularly in relation to the aftermath and the effects of COVID-19. We had heard and seen several reports and publications uh, where people who were admitted to hospital with moderate to severe infections were having changes or abnormalities in organs beyond the lung, which was a surprise to us. And it wasn't clear whether this damage would continue after the infection and how people felt after the infection. This was early on in March. And so it was that time that um, I, I was really determined and really excited at the opportunity to apply some of the knowledge and skills that I had acquired over the years to answer some of these questions um, using magnetic resonance imaging technology, but also tapping into my expertise in internal medicine. So we designed a study in such a way that we could assess people after they had recovered from the infectious illness, uh, so in the early post-infectious period. And then um, another arm of the study was to track uh, these changes on MRI and how people felt over months from three months to 12 months from the infection. So what did your study start to show? So we know that at two to three months from infection, people who um, are admitted to hospital with moderate to severe infection um, do appear to have some changes in multiple organs. This is not all people, but a proportion, so somewhere between 20 to 30 percent. Uh, can have uh, signs of abnormalities on their MRI um, involving the kidneys, the heart, uh, 10% in uh, the brain and the liver. Um, and, uh, and, and we also detected some changes or abnormalities in blood tests to suggest um, persistent inflammation in people recovering from COVID-19. What type of damage did you see on these images? 
So I refer to it as abnormalities rather than damage, because all we know is that it, it isn't seen in normal, healthy people who have not had COVID um, and do not have significant comorbidities. So the abnormalities are essentially changes in the magnetic property of the tissue, which occurs when the tissue has more water content or is swollen or inflamed. Um, it can also occur if there's damage because of problems with the blood flow to the organ. So if there are clots forming in the blood vessels that can cause injury to the organ and, and it can manifest as changes on, on the image signal from MRI scans. When you say that you've looked at the hearts, lungs, brain, liver, kidneys, do people with the, these changes tend to have the changes across all of those organs or does it tend to be specific organs in different people? That's a, an important question. As a matter of fact, we don't see a huge overlap in the pathology across the various organs. And again, this is remarkably similar to the experience of patients. We know how diverse the experience of patients can be. You know, uh, For some people, headache is the most dominant complaint. For others, fatigue is the most dominant complaint. And for some, being very breathless is what cripples them and prevents them from returning to work. So these findings of multiple organ involvement, which may not all be in the same individual, uh, are actually, you know, consistent with how people are feeling. If you combine your sort of generalist background with your specialty, what do you think just, you know, after a year of studying this is going on? That's a million dollar question. Uh, and, you know, I think, well, long COVID isn't just one disease. I think there are multiple phenotypes or multiple clusters. I think there are multiple clusters within this big umbrella. So there's, uh, there, there are multiple um, hypotheses and there are, uh, there are many explanations that are being put forward by experts, um, uh, emerging experts in the field. So one is that there might be ongoing information in patients, and there's certainly some strong data in support of this. Uh, so uh, we know in hospitalized patients that um, a marker of inflammation in the blood was found to independently correlate or associate with persistent symptoms in patients um, and this feeling of uh, lack of recovery. What marker is that? So it's C-reactive protein. But neither of us have our CRP elevated, do we? No. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be elevated in the sense of a disease. So it doesn't have to be in the range of a disease level. Even if it's mildly elevated, even if it is in a range which is slightly above normal, that can affect the way people feel. Um, so this is one theory. We don't know for sure whether this will answer all the questions. Another is the hypothesis that the blood is sticky uh, and that there are tiny clots being formed and the blood vessels are unhe unhealthy. And so when we exercise and we demand the blood vessels to deliver oxygen and nutrients to the tissue, it fails to do so. Again, this hypothesis is pioneered by groups that have a deeper understanding of the vascular health of people recovering from COVID-19. Um, and then there's a thought that this might all be fueled by mitochondrial dysfunction. So the mitochondria is a powerhouse of uh, multiple tissues and organs and it works to sustain or provide fuel for uh, ongoing or sustained activity. And there's some data to suggest that the mitochondria might not be as efficient um, and particularly during exercise struggles to keep up with the increased demands um, and manifest as uh, increased fatigue or post-exertional malaise. And then there is a concept of 
organs being dysfunctional. So there's some data to suggest that there are changes in the brain that has occurred after COVID uh, that may affect the way the body perceives uh, signals uh, such as uh, sense of smell, pain, um, and that these changes independently associate with symptoms of loss of smell. So there's been work done by the UK Biobank uh, researchers that um, that indicate that that might be a player. So I said, as I said, there's no one answer, and that's just how the disease is. Everyone's experience is a bit different, and it's important for researchers to have an open mind, to listen to patients, and to continue the research and continue looking at treatment options to see whether they help patients. Talking about the fatigue, which I think will lead into into mitochondria, can you tell us what what is fatigue? What do we mean by that? Because it seems to have so many different forms. I mean, you can just actually be sleepy, tired, the physical tiredness, the complete exhaustion. Tell us what your understanding is of fatigue. Yes. So as you say, it can have um, many manifestations. From my perspective, I think it's just feeling like you're unable to do what you previously would do, uh, whether it's physical activity, being able to so this mental fatigue, emotional fatigue. So it's just not being able to do something to the capacity that you used to do before you fell ill, for instance. And what drives that on a cellular level? Well, that's that's what we're researching at the moment. And I can um, hopefully in six months down the track, I, I may have some answers to that question. <laughs> So you're doing a lot of work on on the mitochondria, aren't you? So yes, we are studying um, the mitochondrial function, um, particularly now in long COVID, um, individuals who are recovering from COVID-19. Now in COVID, we know that uh, during the acute period, there have been studies done in people uh, where they've tried to assess the mitochondrial function in the blood cells of people in the acute phase of illness. And they've measured the mitochondrial activity in their blood and shown that it's impaired when compared to other people uh, recovering from other viral illnesses or respiratory infections. Um, and uh, they're also, the mitochondria also releases uh, certain chemicals when it's damaged or stressed. And these levels, the level of these chemicals were high in the blood of people who had COVID-19. Uh, now, after COVID-19, there have been a number of studies uh, showing that uh, when you exercise someone on a bike or a treadmill in a test called cardiopulmonary exercise testing, many patients have to stop much earlier than the predicted time for their age and uh, for their uh, general fitness. And this is due to a buildup of acid in the muscle or lactic acid in the muscle of the body. And so they can feel this cramp or pain in the muscle. Um, and this can occur due to problems with the way the body handles the fuel during exercise. And one mechanism uh, that can explain it is mitochondrial dysfunction. So there are now lots of studies uh, of cardiopulmonary exercise testing that suggest that there may be an issue with the mitochondria's ability to generate energy in the muscle uh, or uh, the ability of the skeletal muscle to utilize oxygen efficiently. So some problem with the metabolism in the skeletal muscle. And we were approached by Accela, a clinical stage biotechnology that are um, leaders uh, in developing uh, endogenous metabolic modulators, so uh, treatments that effectively act on the metabolism of tissue. And we were asked whether we could trial uh, a treatment that they've developed, which has been shown to uh, restore mitochondrial health 
in uh, patients with fatty liver disease, but also improve inflammation in these patients. And that's what led us to developing a phase 2 clinical trial uh, of this treatment in COVID-19 patients, uh, long COVID patients. Can you tell us what that clinical trial involves in terms of the size of it and the length of time that that will take you? Yes. So the clinical trial is a double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled study. So neither the patient nor the doctor knows what treatment they're getting. They will either get the treatment uh, that Accela developed or uh, a placebo, um, and uh, they'll have to take the treatment for a duration of one month. During this period, we will assess uh, how they feel. Uh, we will um, gather data about their fatigue levels, um, and we will measure the mitochondrial function using a sophisticated MRI sequence called 31 phosphorus magnetic resonance spectroscopy that tells us about the mitochondrial health um, in the skeletal muscle. So um, they'll have a scan before they get the treatment and a scan at the end of treatment. And we will compare the change in mitochondrial function, the relative change in mitochondrial function between those who receive treatment and the placebo arm. And the hypothesis is that because this drug works to improve mitochondrial function, that this should improve the um, energetic signal from their muscle and should translate or would help them uh, feel better uh, with an improvement in their symptoms of fatigue. So, so it's very specifically to do with the fatigue, the, the mitochondria. If you improve the functioning of the mitochondria, do you suspect that other symptoms can be alleviated? So we have hope that uh, because of the way this treatment works in other disease models where um, it is shown to improve inflammation as well, that it may have other benefits if it works in, in patients. So we spoke to Bill Hinshaw, and he's the CEO of Axella Therapeutics. And he's actually explained what they're doing. It was really easy to understand. We spoke to Bill about their development of treatment 1125. First, I'm, I'm sorry that you all are uh, facing this situation. Uh, and I'm also really gratified and grateful that you are trying to give voice to this important issue because it must be very difficult for patients who are, in essence, facing what appears to be an unsympathetic healthcare system. Because unfortunately, they're not really good options for long COVID patients at this point in time. We understand it's very real. We understand it has tremendous impact on people and their families. And we're excited to have an opportunity to contribute here. Uh, our science that we've been looking at for our endogenous metabolic modulator platforms or EMMs and what's occurring in the science of long COVID related to mitochondrial dysfunction gives us the potential to maybe make an impact for people suffering from fatigue and muscle weakness. And that's something we know is important and we look forward to investigating with Oxford. Um, and that is something that uh, your company is quite specific in dealing with. You're a clinical stage biotech company, but this method of action is what you uh, specialize in. Is that right? 
Absolutely. So we're, we're founded by Flagship Pioneering, which many of your audience may know because they founded Moderna, right, which is obviously part of the group that's done tremendous work to help on the vaccination aspect of this pandemic. What's at the heart of all those companies is a big, potentially transformational idea. And Emily, to your question, in our case, what that looks like is what if you could use endogenous or natural molecules to reset multiple pathways at the same time in the setting of complex diseases. And it turns out you can. And we have with these compositions of amino acids and their derivatives, and we have two important liver programs, one in NASH, uh, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, fatty liver disease, and the other one is called hepatic encephalopathy, which is a, a neurocognitive impairment for patients with cirrhosis of the liver. That's what led us to long COVID, is the findings that we saw in our 1125 program that showed an impact to restore uh, cellular energetics in the setting of NASH and in preclinical data. And that's what we also saw emerging in the science of long COVID with patients suffering from fatigue and muscle weakness, which unfortunately is what the majority of y'all are suffering from and, and needs to be addressed because you know better than I how devastating this can be. Well, and I think that's really exciting that we're able to repurpose research for long COVID because we're not starting from a stop. You've already done so much of the work that you're able to repurpose some of this towards long COVID. How long did it take you to develop this idea about trying to refeed the mitochondria? So that's been part, Noreen, of the science we've been looking at from the start, because you, I think, nicely characterize it as a repurposing of the research. The way that we look at it is there are fundamental biologies that we know if we can reset, you know, reprogram, that could potentially have profound effects on health in the setting of complex diseases. So we were looking at mitochondrial, metabolic, inflammatory, immune impacts from our EMM compositions. And so we've been studying that since we have really been focused on this for the last three or four years. What we did last year and into this year is get our data in, look at that impact. We saw impact on what's called fatty acid oxidation and inflammation on redox. And this shows a carryover to what's happening uh, in long COVID. So for instance, Dr. Raman at Oxford likes to describe the energy process as kind of a battery, right? And when you have a rechargeable battery, the mitochondria is the source of energy for that. And when the virus infects the cells, one of the hypotheses, and this is seen in other viral diseases as well, is they repurpose that mitochondria to produce more virus, right? And, that, and it switches to something called glycolysis. And that damages the cell in this case. So even if the virus is no longer active, the impact on that battery is now it can't hold its charge. And so what we're hoping to do with 1125 is allow the battery to repair itself and hold its charge. Another good way of thinking about this, and this may be a little too close to home for you and your patients in one regard, is cells need to breathe and they need energy, right? And if you are holding your breath twice as long, you're not able to exercise or function in the same way as if you're breathing in a normal way. And that's what we're trying to do. So we're testing with Oxford 
patients who have an abnormal, what's called phosphocreatine, okay? And that's that energy currency of the cell. And if we can change that and make a progress on that, it'll show we're impacting the mitochondrial function. And that has been translated into muscle function and things like six minute walk, which is a measure of daily living that's used for regulators. And that would give us even more confidence uh, to continue to scale our, our research and our work here to try to make a difference for the patients who are suffering here. That's a really interesting analogy. So are you saying that basically the thing that's happening to the mitochondria is, is as if we're holding our breath, as if we're not allowing our body enough breath? Yeah, Emily, it's a good analogy. You can look at it as energy or breath. And the cells yeah. need to do both. Right. They, they need to respirate. Okay? Yeah. They need to exchange. And they create ATP. Right, ATP is the energy currency of the cell. And what's happening in patients that we're studying in the trial with uh, Oxford is these patients take about 50 seconds abnormal to recover their energy reserves. Okay, That's the rechargeable batteries. Yeah. Normal is about 25 plus minus. So you get a sense of the scale so here. Interesting. And, yeah, and if we can help the battery recharge and hold its charge, now the energy of ATP can flow through the cells properly. And that's what we're looking to study. And it could certainly uh, play an important role in long COVID, but also other mitochondrial diseases as well. And so uh, that, you know, to Noreen's original question, we had this hypothesis that we could do this with our composition. We've seen that in our NASH trial, both preclinically and in clinical settings. And so that's why we set out to work with world experts to figure out what's the best way to test this and advance this quickly but clearly uh, for uh, long COVID. And then if we get the results we're hopeful for and, and want to deliver, which we'll see by the middle of next year with our current planning, then we can take the next step in development at that stage. I can see that not only for people who are not very well, this would be good for athletes as well, no? Well, there are a number of applications for energetics, right? Uh, and what we're focused in on right now are the three disease states that I mentioned. But you're tapping Noreen into the potential yeah. that we believe this approach could happen uh, or could have. And it can be in a host of myopathies, which are diseases related to the mitochondrial function and energy. And there could be broader applications beyond that. We believe we've uh, got an opportunity in metabolic disease, in mitochondrial disease, inflammation, Okay. And these are areas we've already demonstrated. We also see other opportunities. But right now, we want to study this carefully, get a really good understanding of the signal uh, with our partners at Oxford and working on the, studying this. And that will then inform where we can go next to try to help people. So when you say resetting that functionality or resetting the cells, do you anticipate mm -hmm. that people should be able to take your uh, medicine for a certain amount of time and should then be able to stop. It should have reset the cells or reset the body somehow so they can then stop taking it. Or do you anticipate that you have to continue it forever? So, Emily, it's a great question and it's going to depend on the disease and what the insult of the disease and how that's going, uh, we will find that out through clinical development. Meaning in the case of NASH, for instance, which is a chronic disease where there's continuous insult or injury to the liver, 
you need to offset that and how long we need to do that will determine through clinical programs. In the case of long COVID, we're gonna do the first initial test for 28 days of dosing. We're gonna see the impact on uh, the PCR test that I mentioned, as well as lactate levels, fatigue scores, and six minute walk. What we're looking at there is to see the correlation and the relationship there. We The primary measure is gonna be the PCR measurement of mitochondrial function. Now, then in terms of how long we need to give it, that we will have to determine. The hope is that for some situations, we would be able to get it, give it for a defined period of time, the body would reset, and then you'd be able to move forward. We don't know that yet is the honest truth with uh, this particular study. That would be the hope. Uh, in the case of chronic diseases, it may need to be given chronically uh, to offset what's driving the issue that they're facing. This is the beauty of working with the body systems, right? These, uh, these endogenous metabolic modulators are regulators and signaling agents. So they basically tell your body what to do and they signal up and down more or less of this. And we, we take them in through our diet, but we also have gaps in that. And what we're putting together is compositions that are specifically designed to affect very specific pathways that in a, a disease state are dysregulated or not working properly, and they need to be intervened at the same time. So a way to think of us is directed combination therapy with things that your body is used to working with. And what that creates is a multi-targeted, meaning hitting different uh, aspects of the disease, safe and well-tolerated to date and oral. So a lot of the things that make it easier for a patient to take and hopefully get that benefit. So it sounds to me almost like a supercharged supplement. So it is, we are developing therapeutic drugs here in Noreen. That's our goal. And the yeah. distinction is uh, not what it's made of. Yeah. Its distinction is in what setting it is used and what level of regulatory uh, steps has it gone through and what impact it has in what setting. So we're talking about, and you know this better than I, very serious diseases. All right. And we are we have demonstrated to date already in our previous studies impact on liver fat in NASH, impact on inflammation there, impact on neurocognitive impairment in the cirrhotic patients. So I think most people can make that projection. But I, I will tell you that hormones are EMMs. OK, bile acids are EMMs. GLP-1s that are used in diabetes. They're all drugs. Okay, they're all therapeutic prescription agents, and that's what our focus is on at this time, and that's what we believe we have the opportunity to contribute. The benefit is, is your body's used to working with them. They have the potential to be safer, potentially. They're not metabolized in the same way, so there's some benefits to it, but the therapeutic impact is what we're aiming for here to make a difference for those patients. What have you seen so far in your trials as the side effects, the potential potentially less attractive things that have happened to patients when undergoing trials of this drug? Emily, I'll answer that, but I'll use it back to bridge to Noreen's question. Okay, part of what you take from therapeutics versus supplements is the level of research and the strength of the clinical data findings that have been done under a regulatory environment. 
Okay, so what that does is give you stronger confidence about the effect that you are seeing if you take the product. Now, Emily, to your question, it also uh, illuminates or shines light on what are the likely side effects that potentially come in that study, in that setting. So our products are, again, compositions of amino acids put together in very specific ratios. And what you typically see is actually a very well-tolerated and safe profile. Now, uh, my clinical team, when they present this, normally if you've looked at a package insert that you get at the pharmacy, you'll see many pages of potential side effects that occur because of the way that we study and capture this information. In our case, it's quite short and to date. And that's what you typically can see, and not every patient does, is some transient and self-resolving GI uh, experience. Okay, now when you give a higher volume of amino acids, sometimes uh, the GI has to adjust to that. For some patients, they experience it. For others, they don't. And that's the majority of the side effects that we've seen to date. And it hasn't led to discontinuations or things of that nature in our current trials. And we'll continue to monitor that and understand and then describe it appropriately for the healthcare providers and the patients so they can make an informed decision on that. But that's one of the benefits, again, of working with a product like this is we have that opportunity. So in the UK, long COVID is now quite well established as a disease. In other parts of the world, not so much. And when I was in the US this summer, I was talking to a lot of people who didn't know anything about it. Never heard of it. I know a lot of the countrywide research in the US comes from um, insurance companies. What is your estimate? Because we haven't really spoken to anyone about this yet, about how many people are suffering in the, U in the US with long COVID. Yeah. So to your point, Noreen, there's not a hardcore database that you would look at and say it's exactly this amount of patients. However, when you look at the number of patients who have had COVID itself, the number percentage of patients who are suffering from long COVID, uh, current estimate is roughly a quarter of those patients, and the majority are suffering from fatigue and muscle weakness. So if you do simple math, we're talking about more than 7 million Americans are probably suffering from fatigue and muscle weakness right now, if That's not crazy. more. It's so huge, it is an incredible amount of people who are facing this. And again, we hear the stories of triathletes who go to wheelchairs and, and how devastating it can be to try to just do normal life, you know, uh, for some of these patients. So this is why uh, the talented women and men I have the opportunity to work with are passionate about trying to evaluate this and see if we can make a difference for those people. Because it's, it's very large to your question and it's very real. And it has a huge impact, not just on the patient, but I'm sure their families. Uh, uh, Dr. Raman has given some data, as you mentioned, in the UK, it's maybe better characterized. We're up to half of these people are not able to work at the level that they were previously. So it's both an individual and a societal impact that we are going to need to try to address together. In terms of your treatment, is this going to be something that is only accessible to those who have serious money, because we see a massive discrepancy in the UK between what people who have uh, private health insurance, obviously our system is very different here, but there's a massive difference between those that have private health insurance and uh, uh, what they can get in terms of speaking to people and treatment 
um, and those that don't. The NHS long COVID clinics here are, are, are somewhat lacking. Is this going to be accessible to everyone? Is it going to be a price point that's accessible to everyone? So I understand fully the question of somebody who's worked in more than 120 countries and seen the different healthcare systems around the world and what access means to people, right? Because it's, it's, and that is important to us here. We're not at the stage right now, honestly, where we're even thinking about pricing. We're looking at that point because we're doing what's called a phase 2A trial, which is the early evaluation of the proof of the concept. And then we would move to the next step uh, after the data on that piece. We will work with the governments and the systems to try to make sure that the products are as accessible as we are in a position to do so. That's important to me as somebody, again, who's worked in uh, quite a few countries and seen how important that is. Uh, and it will be important in order to help more patients uh, reach and achieve what they're trying to do. We'll have to work through that with the systems. Uh, and as you noted, Emily, they're quite different across the world. That does play an important role. Um, how long oh, is it before this might be available? Should it be deemed useful? So you're in the yeah. phase two trial. So what's next? Yeah, because pre-pandemic, didn't people used to say that it would take five years to get a drug from concepts to being approved it can take far longer than that actually so do you have yeah. different timelines on this every drug and every disease the timelines can vary and it varies depending on what are you measuring how long that takes to prove it uh, how much safety information you need so the regulators work with the companies to figure that out right in this case what we would do is we're doing the 2a uh, we will finish that by the middle of next year. We will at that point have what's called an end of phase two meeting all right, with the regulatory bodies, MHRA, in your case, FDA, Swiss Medic, others. And we will then determine what is the best, most effective, fastest path forward to get to registration. And that is going to depend on the data that we demonstrate and how we can translate that into what is called a phase 2B slash 3 type trial. So our objective would be to bring this as fast as possible to patients in that setting. We know that the regulators are doing the right balance, I would say, ladies, in terms of they want to facilitate the best science to help, and they also have an obligation to society to make sure that that is well investigated, safe, and well understood. And so we've had excellent interactions with the MHRA to date on how we would set up the study, what we would measure. They approved what's called the clinical trial application quite quickly after that robust discussion. And that's why we're able to start the trial this year with Oxford very rapidly after initiating this. So Noreen, we hope to gather the data, have those meetings, and then move very quickly into a potential registration, how long that would be would depend on what we're measuring, how large is the requirement, and we would work hard on that to get that done as quickly as possible. And this study is 40 people, is it, this initial study? Typically, when you then take it to scale, how big did, does one tend to scale that up in the next phase of clinical trials? I'm going to try to answer this as, <laughs> as clearly as I can, and it because it depends on what you're measuring, Emily. In this case, if you're measuring something like survival in the case of cancer, yeah. okay, that sometimes can take a long time. Sometimes that can take a short time, depending on what happens normally. Okay, In this case, we would work with the regulators to measure things like 
uh, fatigue scores, patient reported outcomes, what's happening, the six minute walk, functional measures and how that is happening, potentially other biomarkers that would allow us to understand which patients are responding better, who we could select, et cetera. So that's one of the reasons why you do the earlier studies mm-hmm. is so you get a chance to understand what's the what's called the effect size, how much the benefit is. And now you project out to show an impact, we would need, uh, you know, 100 patients, 200 patients. In some cases with some, you know, cardiovascular diseases, you're talking tens of thousands of patients that you're measuring in these studies. We don't have that information yet uh, for the long COVID studies. Uh, I I anticipate it will be a relatively what we would look at as achievable uh, group of patients in terms of the size, but that's what we would have to figure out based on our data and the discussions with the agencies. I mean, I think best case scenario, we're looking at 2024. I will say that we're not going to give a number yet, Noreen. <laughs> we're going to work extremely hard to try to bring that as fast as possible. That's yeah. that, you know, if the data comes in very strong and powerfully, which we hope it does, then we will do everything we can in our power to do that. Now, what I will tell you uh, on the company level, and this goes back to your kind of repurpose comment, One of the advantages that we have in this case is 1125 is already in a phase 2B program for the NASH indication. And so a lot of the work that you normally have to do that takes years sometimes, Emily, to your comment, we've done that work. So we don't have to go back and start from scratch. So that could give us an important time advantage that will allow us to move faster than it otherwise would. Are you doing any similar studies in the U.S. with 1125, with long COVID people, or just at Oxford? At this point, we're doing the Oxford study uh, because Oxford is a center of excellence Okay, in long COVID. It is a center of excellence in measuring the mitochondrial impact that we talked about, the phosphocreatine, and we are well-powered to understand the impact that we're going to have. They also are able to make sure the patient experiences, patient reported outcomes, things that we're measuring are very well done. And at that point, then we hope that our next studies uh, will go quickly and they are intended to be global in nature, including the US. You must be, given that you've done the previous trials, you must be reasonably confident because these things do not happen lightly. I think that COVID and long COVID has huge development opportunities for pharmaceutical companies, but it also incurs huge risks to to people like you. This must cost a a huge amount to go through the research and development of of a new product. So would you say you have some confidence in it? We absolutely have belief and confidence that the preclinical data we've seen and the clinical data we've seen and the science in uh, long COVID make it worth studying. Absolutely. Okay. And that's mechanistic uh, data. That's the fact that we understand that these are fundamental biologies, whether it's just how the mitochondria works or it's what happens in a viral infection and what we've demonstrated with 1125. To your point, none of these decisions are taken lightly. These are significant investments from a financial and Mm. company standpoint, but they're also efforts to try to help people. And so you want to do your best in those settings to have a very uh, good chance of making a difference, right? And we're, we're in a position where we have mechanistic data, clinical data, pathways in, my, in lung COVID, 
and as we talked about before, a product that's already a certain level, so we understand information on safety and dosing and things like that. So we're optimistic, uh, but you have to you have to do the t- studies right and and demonstrate it in the right setting, which goes back, Noreen, to your earlier question and why I am passionate about the fact that these are therapeutics, right, and that we're going to test them in that way for these patients. And so, yes, we we're optimistic, we're hopeful, we want it to work, and we have a good foundation of why we believe that has the chance to succeed. Fantastic. So, Dr. Raman described medication as uh, powder. Is that right? Does it come in a little sachet, different flavors? It comes in a sachet, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you mix it with alcohol. Doreen, not at this point. We mix with water. <laughs> so, um, so yes, it's it's actually an extremely convenient packaging. Now, bear in mind, these, again, are amino acids. So you need a certain size. You need a certain volume to kind of reset your body's pathways, right? It's not just a small amount. So that's why we have the sachets. It's a dry powder. Uh, You simply tear it off, pour it into, say, 200, 240 milliliters of water in this case, shake, drink, and you're done. And we're testing it twice a day. Okay, so it's, it's convenient. You can take this with you. Right, if you're traveling, if you're doing other things, and uh, so far the taste, the mouthfeel, as it's called, and the compliance has been very high. It's an orange dreamsicle type taste, and we spent a lot of work on this uh, because of two things. One is um, the amino acids have a certain taste. Okay, as a former athlete myself, I used a lot of supplements to try to help my body recover and perform. And choking them down and high volumes and things like that was not very pleasant. The other piece that's more uh, important here, because we're talking that my team has generated what would normally be almost a mound of things into a very small amount, okay, relatively speaking. And cirrhotics have uh, altered taste. So this has to be in the right zone. And so far, we've really hit that. And that's that's not a trivial thing because we want these patients uh, to be able to take it easily, right, and to experience that positively. Well, I'm excited. So 2024? <laughs> <laughs> I love the persistence. We're going to do everything we can. I'm not going to have long COVID by then. Let's absolutely hope that that's the case, right? Super interesting. It's super interesting because there's not many fresh um, drugs out there that are being looked at for long COVID. Oh, and we've not really seen that many clinical trials coming through. So let's watch this space. It's going to be quite an extended period of time, but let's watch this space to see what happens with it because it could potentially have uh, a lot of, what's the word I'm looking for? It has a lot of um, applications. It's not just for That's long COVID. Yeah. It'll be for people who are suffering from chronic fatigue, could be for people yeah. who, you know, want to enhance their sporting Medical. ability. Medical? What am I talking about? Athletic performance is what I was trying to say. Yeah. It We're could all be over a, the place could... this I really am. I'm really sorry. So am I. So am I. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.